Just before his ascension, Jesus told his apostles they were to be his witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Well, the church in Jerusalem was growing. By the fourth chapter of Acts, there were approximately 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem. And the church was reaching into Judea because people from the cities around Jerusalem were coming, bringing their sick. But there were no signs of the gospel going any further. Now, the passage of time isn't indicated in the first chapters of Acts, but it's possible that three or four years had passed by the eighth chapter. And still, there was no movement out of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. Something had to be done. The gospel wasn't intended for just one city. It was intended for the world. So God had to push his people out of the city. And the way he did it is actually a bit frightening. You know, most of us realize that Paul was a great missionary, responsible for the spread of Christianity into Asia Minor and Europe. But even before he became a Christian, God used Paul to motivate his people into witnessing in Samaria. Let's see how he did it. Picking up our study in the book of Acts this morning, beginning in chapter 8. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. At the death of Stephen, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. Now, some suggest the focus of the persecution was the Greek-speaking Christians, the Hellenistic Jews who had become believers. You know, the Orthodox Jews really didn't like them anyway, and the persecution that arose was caused by the Orthodox Jewish leadership. But the uh, Hellenistic Jews who had become Christians, like Stephen, began openly teaching the superiority of Jesus over Moses and that God dwelt in hearts and lives, not in a temple of stone, and that would obviously make enemies of the Orthodox. And it stands to reason that the persecution wouldn't stay limited to Hellenistic believers for long because others in the church would have to support them and agree with what they were saying because it was true. So severe persecution 
developed against the entire church. And the believers were literally scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. They were forced to flee for their lives. Only the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Perhaps Gamaliel's advice to leave them alone was still being followed, or maybe they just couldn't be frightened off. Whatever the case, the apostles stayed, but the rest of the church scattered. It was being ravaged. And the persecution started, apparently, after devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Now, Jewish law allowed for the burial of those who had been stoned, but it forbid lamentation over them. They were condemned criminals, not heroes, and no public sorrow over their death was to be expressed. But Luke notes that some devout men made loud lamentation over the death of Stephen. Who they were, were not told. It's quite possible that they were devout Jewish men who did not approve of the stoning of Stephen or had been impacted by the way he died. And their lamentation over the death of a Christian may have been what pushed Saul into open persecution against the church. He was the young man, you recall, who held the coats of the witnesses against Stephen. And Luke notes he was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. He may have even been on the Jewish council that condemned him because he later states that he voted against Stephen. But whatever the case, we know Saul was a man of strong convictions and hot passions. If he was against something, everyone knew it. The converse, of course, was also true. That's why after his conversion, he became Paul the greatest missionary to ever live. But for now, he was Saul, his Hebrew name, and he began ravaging the church, ravaging it like an animal, like a wild boar tearing up the field or a predator on a fresh kill. He was breaking into homes, dragging off men and women, hauling them into prison so they could be tried by the Sanhedrin for heresy and blasphemy. Now, they wouldn't be in prison long. No one was kept in prison for long. Prisons weren't viewed as a place to house criminals or to rehabilitate them. It was simply a place where they could be held until trial. Then they were freed, beaten and freed, or executed. And Saul was hauling everyone he thought to be a heretic to jail. There was no place for them to hide. He was breaking into their homes. There was no place they could stay that was safe in Jerusalem. So the Christians were literally driven from their homes, and they fled into the surrounding countryside and towns. They even fled into the cities of Samaria, the province north of Judea. It was, it was a horrific situation. But as always, God can bring good out of a horrible situation. And he used this persecution to accomplish his purposes. As the people were scattered, 
they went about preaching the word. Now, they didn't become traveling evangelists in the formal sense of the word, you know, holding meetings and passing the plate. They didn't hit the street corners with soapboxes, or at least not at first, but they did evangelize nonetheless. The word translated preaching literally means bringing good tidings. And this they did. As they sought refuge, tried to find places to stay and food to eat, they not only told the bad news of their plight, they also told the good news of Jesus. They told why they were on the run, because of their faith in Jesus and how he was worth losing everything they had. What a powerful testimony. What an interesting approach to evangelism. As they were scattered, they witnessed to the love of Christ. So the people were witnessing. In Samaria, they were doing what Jesus had commanded the apostles to do. Witnessing, however, soon became more than simple sharing of good tidings by believers. It wasn't long until we find someone openly proclaiming Christ to the masses. The first one to do so was a deacon from the church in Jerusalem. Verses 5 through 13. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. When they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, the Philip mentioned here is not the Apostle Philip. The Apostles, you remember, all stayed in Jerusalem. This Philip had been a deacon in the church at Jerusalem. He was one of the seven appointed to serve tables. The need for that ministry, however, ended when the church scattered. But Philip, like Stephen, was a man of faith. And full of the Spirit. And he too had been given special sign gifts 
of the Spirit. When he went down to Samaria and everywhere was considered down from Jerusalem, he became a herald of Christ. He began openly proclaiming the word of Christ. Now again, this was Samaria. And Jews weren't welcome in Samaria. Even Jesus was refused lodging there. For centuries, there had been great animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were were half-breeds in the eyes of true Jews. And the Assyrians carried into captivity the educated and influential Jews in the 8th century B.C., the commoners who were left behind intermarried with the foreigners who were brought in, and they became a mongrel race. When the exiles returned and rebuilt the city and the temple, Samaritan offers to help were scorned. They were not considered fit for holy work. And so they built their own temple, a rival temple in Gerizim. But Philip, being of Hellenistic ancestry, was apparently the right person to bridge the gulf between the Samaritans and the Hebrew Christians. You know, Jews who became Hellenistic were those who had stayed in the lands of exile and adopted Greek culture while maintaining their Jewish faith. So they were about halfway between the Samaritans and the Hebrews in orthodoxy. So Philip was the perfect choice to proclaim Jesus to the Samaritans. And the people were listening to him. Multitudes, in fact, were given attention to what he had to say. And his message was confirmed by the signs he was able to perform. The laying on of the apostles' hands had enabled him to perform miracles. He could cast out unclean spirits. He could heal the paralyzed and the lame. Now, these signs were important because they gave credence to the message of spiritual healing he was proclaiming, and many people believed in him resulting in much rejoicing in the city. The gospel was setting people free. Those who had formerly been under the influence of Simon, a magician who apparently claimed to be an angel, the great power of God, were now coming to the truth under the influence of Philip. And when they believed Philip, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Even Simon believed and was baptized. And there's nothing to indicate his faith wasn't real and his conversion genuine. Luke does, however, indicate that Simon was constantly amazed by the signs and miracles Philip was able to perform. Apparently his old fascination with magic soon had him paying more attention to the miracles than to the message. Not a good thing. Whenever our subjective spiritual experiences begin to become more important than the objective word of God, we are headed for trouble. I want to say that again. Whenever 
our subjective spiritual experiences began to become more important than the objective Word of God, we are headed for trouble. And trouble soon appeared in Simon's life when the apostles came to Samaria. Verses 14 through 25. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you've said may come upon you. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard what was happening in Samaria, they sent Peter and John to Samaria so the believers there could receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's a bit confusing. Luke says the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But in Acts 2.38, we read, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That indicates that when our hearts and lives are cleansed, the Spirit comes in. So are we to believe that the Holy Spirit did not indwell the believers in Samaria? I don't think so. I'm convinced that like us, at their baptism, they received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What they had not received, however, were special gifts of the Holy Spirit that could come only through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Gifts like those possessed by Philip. Gifts that would enable the new believers to know the mind and will of the Lord before it had been written down by the apostles. Gifts of wisdom and prophecy as well as sign gifts that would confirm the divine nature of the messages that would be delivered to the young church in Samaria. You know, Philip would soon be leaving, and the apostles were going to return to Jerusalem. So it was essential that the church there be given what it needed to function 
and to grow. That's why the apostles sent Peter and John to Samaria. And they accomplished what they'd been sent to do. There was, however, one problem. Simon. When he saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he couldn't help himself. He tried to buy this power from the apostles. It had no doubt been his practice to buy secrets from other magicians when he was into the occult, and this looked too good to pass up. He thought he could get the franchise on real miracles. Peter made it very clear that this was impossible and called upon Simon to repent. Simon had no part in this apostolic function, and his heart was not right before God. Now, Peter did not condemn him, but he did warn him. And he called upon him to repent in the strongest of terms. Read it in uh, the message if you want to read how strong that was. I'm not even going to say it today. In the strongest of terms, he was warned to repent. Whether he repented or not, we don't know. He asked Peter to pray for him. I think his request was sincere. But how he responded, we're not told. And legends abound about a man named Simon Magnus, a magician who opposed Peter and had contests with him. This may or may not have been the same Simon. We really don't know what happened to this man, but the apostles had done what they had come to do. So they headed home. And as Peter and John went back to Jerusalem, they preached the gospel in Samaritan villages along the way. They were finally doing what they'd been told to do. The gospel was spreading as Jesus had commanded. Even if it did take Saul and persecution to get it done. The believers were witnessing. A deacon was evangelizing And the apostles were preaching the gospel in Samaria. They were going where Christ had commissioned them to go. They were saying what he wanted them to say. They were being what he wanted them to be. What about us this morning? Are we going, saying, and being as Christ has commanded? Or has our circle of witness remained static, confined to one area? Have we grown so comfortable where we are that we've ignored our responsibility to reach out? I think this is a real problem in the church today. We tend to stay where we are. 
in spite of the fact that we had been commissioned to spread the gospel. That wherever we go, we're to take the message of salvation with us. We need to move out. We need to recognize our responsibility to be actively involved in sharing what we have in Christ. We can't just stay confined. Now it's hard. Even the apostles were hesitant to do what Jesus had commissioned them to do. It's hard to say something to your neighbor. It's hard to witness for Christ in the workplace. It's hard to to even consider moving away from home so you can reach out to someone who doesn't know the gospel. It's not easy. It's never been easy. Jesus never said it would be easy. But it's our responsibility. May God give us eyes to see the need that exists beyond our self-imposed borders. And may he do so without the need of a persecution to push us out. We have great opportunity in this land, great freedom. Sometimes we just enjoy that freedom. We don't take advantage of that great opportunity that's before us, that open door that is available to us. We don't know how long that door will remain open. We don't know how long the freedoms we enjoy will be ours. Historically, nations rise and fall. Opportunities change. They come and go. The kingdom of God continues. If we're not fearful, the kingdom of God will will crumble. It'll stand forever. The opportunities we have today as American Christians, the freedom we have to, to speak up, to reach out, we better take it while we've got it. We see it crumbling around us now. We see restrictions being put upon what we can say, what we can't say. The powers that be are struggling to silence the witness of the faith. My prayer is that it will not take full-blown persecution to drive us from home and to actively join the God's call. Who is Holy Spirit? Every one of us. Let's witness to who Christ is, what He's brought into our life, how He's changed us, and how He's worth everything to us. Let's let's take our witness into the workplace. We don't live in two separate worlds. 
Our society tries to convince us to keep our mouth shut when we walk out of the church. How dare you confront someone with your faith? In the military, you're supposed to be quiet, man. Don't say anything. Totally different. No, I don't think we should become obnoxious. Now, the gospel itself is offensive. When we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that's offensive to people. So we shouldn't try to be offensive in our personality. <laughs> Let's reflect the light that's been shown on this show. We have a great opportunity. Let's take advantage of that. Let's go where he wants us to go. Let's say what he wants us to say. Be what he wants us to be. And we can do that by his grace and the strength of God.